Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. All right, friends, I'll welcome you back. And if you are in grades six, seven, eight, you can head off for Apex this morning. Grade six, seven, eight, head out for Apex. Uh, I saw someone give up their chair this morning to welcome others and give them a seat, so yay for being hospitable. Yay. Welcome, friends. Good to be with you. If you're new, my name is Scott Anderson, and I want to say thanks to Cam, who's back at the sound booth today and working the other room with the, uh, the live stream sound. Thanks for your hard work today, Cam. Appreciate it. Can we pray together? Oh, and if you're in grade six, seven, and eight and you didn't hear, get out of here. Go for your thing. Okay, cool. Apex is out. All right, let's pray. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are our reconciling God. And today our hope is in you and who you are and what you've done. We thank you for one another right here that we're not alone, but we're a part of a body. Whether this community right here feels like family or we're distant, we're brand new, we're coming back. Lord, we just bow to you and ask that you would breathe your life upon us today as a whole community. And right here, we would, you would meet with us through your word. God, it is a mystery that you have purposed through your church and through your word, by your spirit, to speak again and again and again. And we can do all we want to put the Bible in a corner, but down through the ages, you have not stopped. And you continue to revive broken and dead souls, awaken people to life, to turn people toward yourself through your word taught, unpacked, and applied. It's a mystery, God, but we embrace it again today. We come and we stand in this mystery and ask that you, by your spirit, would speak to our real lives in our real world right here today. And we give you every person around us and ask for all of us, you'd open our hearts to you, open our ears to you, and you would speak, Lord. We give you the middle school teens just ran out the room, excited for Apex, and their Apex leaders today. Would you come and meet them downstairs? Just like our kids' ministry today, there'd be life for them with you. For your glory, God, for the good of the world and our joy in you, we pray. Amen. So, oh, why are you here? Why are we here? And I'm not just thinking, I'm not asking that primarily in an existential sense, but in a local sense today. Why are we here? 
Why are we here in Victoria? Why are you here in Victoria and its surroundings? Are you here because you've got family here? Are you here because you're pursuing an education? Are you here because you haven't left yet? (laughs) Are you here because you love the ocean? You love being able to drive to the shore or to bike through Mount Doug or hit the trails past Highlands or all the above? Are you here because here is not somewhere else? Because you don't want to be there. Why are you here? Why are we here? I want to drill down a little bit more, a little bit more local for you, for each of us. Not just why are we here in Greater Victoria, but here in the particular places where you live your life. Here in your daily stomping grounds. We all have them, I suspect. Where you live your Monday to Friday the here that's just outside your front window, the here of your Saturday or Sunday afternoon, that place where you feel like, ah, glad to be here. Or, yeah, this is my here, right? Maybe your coffee shop or that bus route or bike route that you take, your workplace that you settle in, you put your stuff down, which could be the back room these days, or it could be an office somewhere your familiar study haunts, that corner of the UVic library, your everyday places. I want you to think about those places for a moment. I hope you already are. And picture yourself in them. Why are you here, wherever your here is? And what about the right now here of us worshiping here, 1780 Feltham Road and Gordon Head, every Sunday or most Sundays? Why are we here? Why does God have us here? I'm sure part of it has to do with the fact that the founders of Lambrick in 1969, this was the available land, likely, in Gordon Head. But with that, even in that, in that, should we not trust that our being in this place and your being in your places is somehow shaped by the sovereign heart of God? That God has placed us here, and in doing so, he's placed us here for reasons. And some of those reasons could be that it is a beautiful thing to live near an ocean, and it is to be enjoyed, or a forest, or a view, a vista, or all the above, or having family near, or an opportunity for education, or it's not there, whatever, all those things. But should we also not believe, trust, that God's sovereign heart is bound up in us being here, which means God has purposes, reasons. Well, over the next while, I want to explore together, over this fall, the reality that we are here, I am convinced we are here because of the gospel. We're here in this place, in these places where God has us, Because of God's heart for not just us, but for this place, this world. Simon had us, spoke those words over. We sang it this morning. For God so loved the world. And not just abstract, that's this right here. 1780 Feltham Road, Feltham Road, Gordon Head, Victoria, the world. 
This community, this bit of the world matters to God. And God's heart, God's desire is that the gospel would have its way in us and then through us, right here, right? When, when, when someone turns to Jesus, we don't, it's the story of the world is not that whenever someone turns to Jesus, they disappear and go to heaven. No, God's dream, God's heart is that the gospel would take root in our lives and begun, begin to take root through us in these places, in these families, in these neighborhoods, in these communities. Yes? One of my favorite books, oh, I was going to bring it. Sorry, it's the Bible. That's one of my favorite books. There's another book I was going to have underneath it that helps me make sense of some of the Bible. Uh, it's one of my favorite books about following Jesus in our day, and it's by Rick McKinley. It's called This Beautiful Mess. I have two copies in my office, one first edition, one second edition. You can borrow one of them, maybe. Rick's a pastor in Portland, Oregon, uh, who's taught me a lot over the years. Uh, his book is a study on the gospel of the kingdom lived out in a place. I love it. Of a, a people, a community, seeking to make sense of what it means to follow Jesus here, for here, right where we are. And he says, he says, the practical promise of our faith journey together is this. As we live in fidelity to Christ the King, his inbreaking reign will have a transformational effect on us, our communities, and our world. And he goes on to say, if not, then I don't think we understand the gospel. Because this is what Jesus is about. And more and more, as I follow Jesus, Jesus is convincing me of this. That this is why we are here. Because of God's passionate heart for our city, for our neighborhoods, for our world that the gospel would be made manifest, known, embraced, experienced, savored, right here in Gordon Head and Victoria and the West Shore and Sandwich Peninsula, as it is in heaven, in us and through us, to a world that needs to know and experience, as much as we do, the life-giving, shalom-bringing reign of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven, which includes right here right wherever you're here is. Is this not what Jesus is after? Isn't this what he teaches, invites us to pray for and live for? But as I'm sure most of us know, it doesn't just happen. And so for the next eight weeks, I want us to slow down and explore this a bit together. And I, I wish I could say in eight weeks, it's all gonna be different. That's not how it works. But I hope that in these eight weeks, as we explore what it means for the gospel to take root in our hearts, in our community, and in our life in the community, that God would grow us up, point us in some directions that become maybe or solidify the tracks that God is inviting us to with our lives. And if you're paying attention uh, in the last few years of Lambrick, this really is our vision as a church, what we've come to distill as our vision of what we believe that God wants for us, life with God for the world. Life with God for the world, that's our dream. Not just a bigger building and more people in a room, but life with God for the world. That we would become people who live our lives with God in a way that bears his influence, his goodness, his grace to the world. 
This framework for the fall series comes from a study by Tim Keller um, called Gospel in Life. Um, Tim Keller is the pastor or emeritus pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. My prayer and hope is that God would use this to broaden our conversations and center our conversations in what God is inviting us all to. I wanted to stop and pray again because I feel like shaky in my bones right now. And it could be because I haven't been sleeping well this week, and I don't know why. I'm just at that age, I'm 45, where like anything I eat after dinner makes me not sleep well. If I have too much cayenne pepper in my homemade salsa, I'm up at three in the morning, whatever. But maybe not. Maybe it's the spirit. Maybe it's my salsa. Let's pray. God, I don't know if others are feeling jangly this morning, as Daniel McDougall would say, but I feel jangly right now. And maybe we all do at times. And Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would settle my heart right here. You would over, overcome or use my physical frailty. We confess together that is your word that gives life, not me. So come give us ears to hear your voice and settle me with faith right here. Amen. All right, so this morning to begin us into this conversation, I wanna invite us into Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have a Bible, Open it with me to Jeremiah 29. And if you don't know where that is, you have a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. Look it up. It's great to learn where some Old Testament prophets are. And let's be honest, most of us don't read Jeremiah very often. I suspect many of us have one verse from Jeremiah memorized, and it comes from this chapter, right? And you know it. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Jeremiah 29, 11. I'm sure some people have it on a pincushion somewhere, on a pillow. It's a, great, it's a great verse. It's a beautiful verse. It's a beautiful promise that we all need to hear, but it's an even better chapter. It's an even more important chapter, Jeremiah chapter 29. One that we need, I think, often to come back to in different seasons of our lives, and so we are today. And I hope this text, I think, in some sense, though we're not gonna spend this fall in this text, it almost becomes a framing text for thinking about what this journey is about, what this conversation is about. And thankfully, if you haven't read Jeremiah recently or ever, and specifically Jeremiah 29 recently or ever, the first verse in Jeremiah actually wonderfully sets the scene for us, introducing us to the context of this chapter I'll read it for us. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders. Hear that word, surviving elders. In other words, there has been something horrific. Some have survived. A letter the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles. It's another big heart word a world-shaping word. Among the exiles 
And to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So right there, right here, we are pulled into a world of epic experience by a whole people, a whole nation, right? Right here, we hear about the Israelites in a particular place, in a new here. Not the here they want to be in, but the here they are now in. The pagan, ancient pagan city of Babylon, which to them must have felt deeply foreign, hostile, right? And especially because they had not chosen to go here, but they have been forced here by their Babylonian captors. So, so much is behind this. Because of this, they found themselves in this place, in this new here, wrestling with a world of questions. Why are we here? What do we, what do, we do here? Why would God allow us to be here? Why didn't God stop this from happening? What are we to do now? How do we be faithful to God here if we even want to? After all, it's gone on, right? There's a, a world of questions that would have been alive in them as they found themselves in this new place. Finding themselves in Babylon would have shaken them to the core. Having their own beloved city, Jerusalem, overthrown, being taken from their homes and their beloved land and forced now into the pagan city of Babylon to work now among and for their captors. This is an experience many of us have no framework for. But there are many in our world who know what this is like. Many down through history who've experienced this alongside of the Israelites. What a confusing, demoralizing, shattering experience this must have been. And especially for them, since many of them had thought it wouldn't happen. They had prayed. They had banded together as they saw Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's armies coming, and they just assumed that it wouldn't happen, that God wouldn't let it happen, that God would in some way at some point intervene and not allow them to be taken into captivity. And some of their pastors, they called them prophets, some of the pastors said this, promised this, we can read about it in Jeremiah 28, but it did happen. In 605 BCE, we're told that many of Israel's leaders and inhabitants, skilled workers, artisans, and others were taken into exile to the great and terrible city of Babylon. And now what? What were they to do? How were they to live in this place? How were they to remain faithful to their God in this place of exile? Could they? How were they to relate to, engage with this city, this pagan city that stood against them that ruined their lives. I just want to pause for a second to name that this is something that isn't just an ancient experience of the Israelites, but something that some of us know. Maybe all of us at different points. Maybe recently we've stepped into a new place. Or maybe the place that we're in has shifted and we find ourselves feeling displaced in a hostile world to us and to our allegiance to Jesus. Maybe stepping onto the university campus for some of us recently has felt very jarring and displaced. This is September, oh, it's October. It's October. It's just so nice outside, it's surprising. 
But this is a time of year where emails get sent to the church from college students saying, can you pray for me? Because I don't know how to do this. I had a support network and all, all that back somewhere else and now I'm here and I'm stepping into classrooms and engaging with professors and living in a dorm where seemingly everything is just shouting at me that you should not be a follower of Jesus. Why would you be a follower of Jesus What's my relationship to this place? How do I live in this place? These are real questions we all grapple with at times. And so for here in, in Babylon, the Israelites found themselves grappling with these questions and in response, hearing two dominant and conflicting responses or invitations for how they were to do life here. In one ear, they could hear their captors, the Babylonians, essentially saying, come, come, come move into the city and make a new life here. Come leave your former ways behind. Come learn our ways. Come become a Babylonian and become useful to us. We want your skills. We want what you can contribute our ways to our agenda, right? This was the explicit purpose of exile, right? As opposed to simply destroying all the people with their city. Nebuchadnezzar brought them to Babylon with the obvious intention that over time, slowly over time, as they lived and worked in this place, among the people, among the Babylonians, they would, the Israelites, be stripped of their unique God-given identity and values and vision of the world, the story of the world, adopt the Babylonian culture and ways and values and become good Babylonians and be useful to Babylon and her purposes. This is the invitation the Israelites heard from their Babylonian captors and a powerful invitation fueled with fear and what would happen if they didn't, right? But in the other ear, they heard the invitation from their prophets, sadly false prophets. If we read uh, the previous chapter, Jeremiah 28, we hear the false prophets promising this isn't even gonna happen. The exile's not gonna happen. And if it does happen, it's gonna be really quick. So don't worry about it. That's what they said. But once in Babylon, the prophets, these prophets, advise them to just keep your distance from anything and everything Babylonian. Sure, be here. You have to be here. But that's it. Stand at a distance as best you can. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do your duty, but keep yourself at a distance. Use Babylon. There's probably some good things here. They have better water, maybe, or whatever. But otherwise, keep your distance. Keep your walls up. Pray against it. Stand against it. Preserve who you always have been. And anyways, it's only going to be a short little time, so just hold on. It's all going to come to an end anyways. God will get you out of this horrible place. That's what the Israelites' prophets were calling to them. And in contrast to both of these, the Babylonian invitation and the invitation of the false prophets, we hear in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, God speaking his invitation and command. Listen with me to what God says to the Israelites as they enter exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7. This is what Yahweh Almighty the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Bit of a clue there. 
It's not going to be overturned instantly, right? Plant gardens, build houses, settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The ESV translates that last line. Pray to the Lord for it for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Can you imagine how startling that would have been for the Israelite exiles, forced out of their land by a pagan king of the superpower of the day, dragged into this city, and here God is calling you. In one ear, the Babylonians say, come, move into the city, leave behind your ways, your values, your story, the way that you understand what it means to be human and what God wants for you and become useful to us. In the other ear, they hear their false prophets saying, stay out of the city. I mean, yes, be there, but like keep every wall up, pray against it, use it, but despise it. All that matters is that you keep your distinction and hear God says, first of all, God says that he's the one who's actually brought you here. Do you hear that? That their exile wasn't simply the work of Nebuchadnezzar. No, God had, had, had intervened in their national story. And this exile was a part of his intervention. Twice in our passage, we're told this. Verse four and verse seven, the beginning and the ending of God's speech here. Verse four I have carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse seven, I have carried you into exile. So yes, Babylon was a tool, but God was the one doing this. And and let's be honest, for some of us, this is a disturbing thought, right? That God would take his own people, send his own people into exile. What do you do with that? I can't answer that completely, but let me ask, would Would you, think about Friday. Think about what Friday was, Truth and Reconciliation Day, and all that has gone on in Canada's story that makes Truth and Reconciliation a vital, necessary, grieving conversation in our land. Would you rather that God didn't take his people's rebellion and unholy ways seriously? Would we rather that God simply allowed his people to disregard his commands, to turn from his ways, ruining themselves and abusing others and do nothing in response? That is not the God we encounter in the story of scripture, the God we encounter in the Exodus, the God we encounter in Jesus. No, the God of scripture is God who takes our ways so seriously, doesn't ignore them, doesn't say, well, whatever, whatever. I just love you. Whatever you do, go ahead, abuse those people. No, that is not the God of Israel. That is not the God that we encounter in Scripture. That's not the God we encounter in Jesus. When we, our lives veer off his path and ultimately all idolatry leads to treating others in inhuman ways. And that's what Israel was doing. God, in love, acts. And this exile was a part of God's 
loving action. Although a severe measure, yes. According to Jeremiah 29, exiling his people was an expression of God's loving action, God's loving concern for them with the ultimate aim, vision, intention that this exile would serve to lead his people back to true repentance and restoration. So God tells us in Jeremiah 29, verse 12 and following, he says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. That's another verse that some of us have memorized. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. But again, hear it in its context that sometimes God has to do something big in our lives to lead us to the place where our heart finally turns back and we realize why, how, why have we sought life apart from you when you alone are the source of life. And that's what God's up to here. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar took them, but God carried them into exile for his purposes. And in this place, God invites and commands his people, now move into the city and seek and learn and follow my ways here. Settle in, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, build a life here, grow your family here. But in all of this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. The peace and prosperity of Babylon, the welfare of Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. This must have shocked them, right? If you were an Israelite banished into exile in Babylon, this is probably not what you would have expected. You might have heard, I expected God to say, pray for Jerusalem, pray for Jerusalem. Don't forget, pray for Jerusalem. But here God says to his people in exile in the pagan city of Babylon, pray for Babylon. Why? Why pray for Babylon? Because as we encounter all throughout the story of scripture, God's heart does not just beat for Jerusalem it beats for Babylon, as it does for every city, and every country, every land, as it does for ours. And this is part of why God sent the Israelites to Babylon. It wasn't just for their own sake, for their own welfare, though it was, that was part of it, but it was also for the sake of Babylon God sent the Israelites to the city of Babylon for the sake of Babylon, that they, God's people, would seek the welfare of the city, seek the peace and prosperity of their neighborhoods and their community. They would represent God's heart and values and passions in the places they found themselves, which was all throughout the city. And that's what we're told. Verse 1 and 2, we're told that the exiles were made up of government officials and artists, priests, and skilled workers, business leaders, architects, physicians, we're not told specifically, but skilled workers. The Babylonians didn't bring everyone, right? They only brought some. They brought those that had certain skills that they wanted to bring to Babylon and use. And in doing so, to spread these people all throughout the kingdom of Babylon in hopes that they would shape them, right? In hopes that Babylon would colonize them, would take them in, shape them by their values, 
But in doing so, the sovereign, in the sovereignty of God, the Babylonians ended up inviting a diverse mix of God's people with diverse gifts and passions and skills to spread out all across the Babylonian city, representing God's values and priorities wherever they ended up and praying for the city, for God's kingdom and will to come, for God's blessing and shalom to break in and take root and spread all throughout the land. It's curious how many Christians, how often we have quoted and clung to the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. We've quoted and clung to that promise without realizing that this promise is spoken to those who will follow God in seeking exactly this for others. Do you hear that? This promise is spoken to those who will follow God in seeking exactly this for others, for Babylon even. For if the city prospers, you too will prosper. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Honestly, as I sit with this again, come back to this text, I find myself aware of how often I pray for my children, but not for the children of my neighbors who are going through their own tumultuous teens. How often I can pray for my career path without ever offering up a prayer for the vocational life of my neighbors, my world, my community. And to be honest, this is why I love Rick McKinley's book. I would have had it here if I remembered. <laughs> this beautiful mess, because it tells story after story of a church, a church like ours, in a city like ours, made up of people like us, because Portland is, is Victoria in a way. It's a bit bigger but it's just as progressive, it's just as anti-everything, it's just as post-everything, and their coffee's about the same. <laughs> it, and this book is a story of a church like ours and a city like ours made up of people like us who heard God's call to stop just living in their place and using the city for their benefits and started praying, God, give us your heart for this city. God, give us your heart for this city. And if you read the book, I will lend it to you if you ask, but I only have two copies, so it's not going to go very far, but I can include a link this week to find it. I, I love the book because it starts with them getting it, as maybe you feel like, yeah, I know this, I know this, I know this, but for them as a church, as a community that was being birthed 20-something years ago, they hit a place where they started saying, okay, we get this, but I actually don't care for my neighbor. Okay, I get this, but I don't actually care. And so the prayer became, God, give us your heart for our city. We know what we should do, but we don't actually want it. God, give us your want. Give us your heart. Break our heart even. Fill us with your heart for our city, for our neighborhood, for our campus, for our family, extended family, whatever it is. Give us your heart for our city and for our neighbors. And with that, they started asking God, how could you, how could we honestly and practically seek the welfare of our neighbors? And they sought to live with their eyes open, praying that prayer. 
They asked, where are God's interests not being represented as they walked through the city, as they drank their coffee and roamed their neighborhoods and did life? They asked, where are people being neglected and treated unjustly? Where are structures harming people rather than serving people? Where is beauty being overtaken by ugliness? Where is truth twisted and replaced with lies? Where is creation exploited instead of cultivated and slowly as they listened, as they prayed, as they repented, and as they sought to live with their eyes open to their here, Portland, they began to follow Jesus in very simple but very real ways, very real acts of selfless love, planting gospel roots in the hard soil of their city. And over the years, the fruit has started to show and be felt by many. And their church has grown a reputation in a city that wants nothing to do with Jesus. Their church has gained a reputation for being for the sake of the city and representing a God whose heart is for the city. That they are Christians willing to lay aside their wants to serve and meet the needs of others. A church alive in God's heart for its neighbors and city. Which I don't know about you, but to me, sounds like Jesus, right? John 1.14, as Eugene Peterson translates it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Why? Because God so loves the world, and not just world abstract, but every little bit. Even your street, even your extended family, your campus, your world, our world, right here. In truth, this is why we are right here. <laughs> at 1780 Feltham Road in Gordon Head. Because in the 1950s, an ordinary Christian man named Harry Penman lived in this neighborhood. Does anyone have a long history in this neighborhood and know the Penman family? I suspect, yeah, Gary, yeah. But Harry Penman lived in this neighborhood and was moved by God's heart for his neighborhood. God's heart for, God's desire to bring God's flourishing blessing to his neighborhood, to know the reconciling life of Jesus. And with the blessing of the elders of his church over a couple neighborhoods, Oakland's chapel, he began a Sunday school in the community hall just like a block and a half behind us on the east side of Lambert Park Park. And he prayed that God would use him for the blessing of his neighbors and community. And others joined, and others joined. And within a decade, that Sunday school in a neighborhood became a church called Lambert Park Church. And 70-something years later, here we are, listening to Jesus together, being called again, into God's heart for our world, for our here, for your here. I woke up this morning and my mind ran. It's just something I'd forgotten that I, I can't believe I'd forgotten. But I remember 10 years ago being a part of another church and praying these prayers often. And one day this woman in her mid-80s 
comes to pray with me and tell me how just recently she had been a part of helping the shutting down of a, an illegal massage parlor in the city we lived in. Because she's just one of Jesus' people. And every week, every day, she read the local paper and she read all the way to the end as someone maybe does when they have more time. All the way through the classifieds, though in 85, she's not looking for a job. All the obituaries, looking for your friends, and then going on all the way through. And at some point in the last year, she had started recognizing ads for a massage parlor that she felt like, I don't think this is just massages. I think this is probably the abuse of, of immigrants who are being forced, pimped, to give massages that end up like a sexual act. These are people being used. This is not something God wants for anyone. These people are being abused and God doesn't want this to happen. And so she prayed and she contacted the authorities and she got this place shut down in her mid 80s. It's a praying lady. What a beautiful story of an ordinary follower of Jesus being alert to her world and saying, God, may your kingdom come. May your will be done. May injustice end. May righteousness grow up. May your flourishing, your peace, your shalom be known here for all. So, why are you here? How are you living here? As you think about your life these days, if you're honest with yourself, is your life more shaped by the Babylonian call? You're dug in deep or you're digging in deep, but you know bit by bit you're actually just giving away the God story that God has given you that shapes your, your life and your heart and your pursuits. You're just giving it away and you are actually being discipled by Victoria because Victoria is very good at making disciples, as is Portland, as is any place. Is that what's happening in your life? Are you dug in, but just giving away, leaving behind, abandoning God's call on your life? Or are you listening to the false prophets and you're here, you're here, but you're just using the city and you're keeping yourself at a distance because you don't want to let its corruption break in on you or your kids. And so you use it, but hands out, wait for heaven. Or is Jesus' invitation calling you? Is your heart saying yes to Jesus' invitation to live here, to pray here, to do your life with the skills and the influence and the places of investment that you have as God's ordinary ambassadors seeking his kingdom in these places with Jesus? Because that's what he's after, right? That's what he's doing. That's his invitation for us that we would discover and learn in him, embrace and embody a life with God for the world. Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come back up too. Let's be still, let's just be still and speak back whatever our heart needs to say. Invite the spirit to continue to lead you into what is in his heart today.
number of years back, this text just felt like God was saying it to me so deeply that as happens in my life, it turned into a prayer that I was praying and singing. And uh, I think I've shared it once before, but we're just going to sing this. I just want to invite us to sit, and it's just God speaking the invitation of Jeremiah uh, 29 to us. I have called you to be planted, build my life here, settle down. Planted, 
Build your life here Settle down Lord God, you who love the world, you who love our world, every person, every child, every nation, every part of us that is turned against you, the Babylon that is in me, and the Babylon that is this land that seeks to make a life apart from you, your heart is for this place and these people, this community. And we just bow today and hear your heart for this place, your desire to bring your blessing, your peace, your prosperity to this land because you are here in us, through us and with us and beyond us. You're the Father who waits with your eye toward a people and a place and a world that has gone to the far country. You're the Father whose heart is for all of us. Awaken us to your heart. Awaken us to your heart. Lead us in repentance. Lord, may we be a people whose hearts break for our world. And in that place, run to you. Or we ask that in our conversation this fall as a church, in this series, our Life with God for the World series, you would take us into the gospel. You would open our hearts to you. You would form our community in you, our life together. And you would lead us to reimagine our work in the world our participation in our neighborhoods and our community, that ultimately you might bear your fruit right here, God. You might be glorified and your goodness would be known through us even, Lord, through us. On earth as it is in heaven, amen.